Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I've picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. All right, we're back with another episode. I am thrilled to have Dr. Addison Colleen here with me. Hello, Addison. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So you sent me this amazing gift box of all these manuals and all of these books, and I was thrilled to jump into it. So before we, I have so many questions. So before we get into that, I just want to tell the listeners um, about you. You're a, a dentist in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. Is that correct? Yep, okay. home of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Well, and Johnny Carson, I understand too, right? Yes, Johnny Carson. See, I yeah. know that because my dad is living with us now, and he loves Johnny Carson, so hear about it all the time. I know. So for some of our newer listeners, newer than dental, you're like Johnny who? But it's funny stuff. All right, so <laughs> so Addison, you're out in Nebraska, which you wouldn't think is the hotbed of you know, city life and all of that, but you've been pretty, you've been pretty successful. You've been able to have about what, seven, eight offices, and now you're in one office that you're growing. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that. When I uh, got into the dental field about uh, 12 years ago, I uh, joined a practice, bought into a practice. We quickly grew that practice up to a network of six practices, and then I uh, sold out of it. You know, I got to do a startup. I've got to do many acquisitions. And then a couple of years ago, then I got back into clinical dentistry and I wanted to do a startup with one of my good friends. So we purchased an office and then quickly moved that office into kind of a startup location. And then right now we're actually at the point we had six operatories and now we're growing to uh, 14 operatories. So pretty exciting construction growing from about 2000 square feet to about 6,500 basically just busting out some walls and taking over the rest of a strip center. I've learned a lot of the bad things to do in both construction and startups and everything, as well as I'm, I'm kind of getting to the end of the road where I think I've figured a few things out. <laughs> That's kind of a good feeling, right? Where you're like, hey, I think I know what to do in this situation instead of, oh gosh, I need to Google, what do I do here? So, And you know, uh, listeners, one thing that's really fun um, about Dr. Colleen Addison here is that he's got a bunch of books that we're going to go into but also this podcast, which is just short and stackable. And I mean, honestly, kudos that you have this daily cadence. I do not. And <laughs> I just think it's amazing you've been able to do that. So uh, you're going to want to check that out. Now, I'm going to link everything in the show notes for uh, for all of you. It's the Daily Dental Podcast, and you can find that wherever you're getting my podcast. And he also guests on a ton of uh, different podcasts. So um, you are also the co-founder of the Dental Success Network with uh, Dr. Mark Costas. How did so? How did you did you run into Mark somewhere? What happened there? How did that happen? Yeah, so we were both uh, up at the ADEC facility up in uh, Newburgh, Oregon, I think, um, touring there, and uh, basically we ran into each other, and it was fast friends, and so got to go to a winery, and Oregon is just you know 
it's beautiful out there, the forest, the wineries, the mountains. And so then after that, we just started working together and uh, it was really great to then help form the Dental Success Network with him and basically be able to just bring a helpful platform to other dentists who are looking for like clinical tips, coaching, and some of the things that improve the practice from both a business or clinical perspective. So one thing that I didn't talk about in our pregame was that when you are on Dr. Costas's podcast, those are the episodes I typically listen to the most because the information that you put out is, I mean, it's so relevant. You're not filling it full of stuff. It's just good, meaty stuff. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you get these like story after story after story. But when when I hear you talk about numbers and getting to the black belt status, they really like I, I just love it. So uh, I will link a couple of my favorite episodes in the show notes as well, where you go over some really good, um, you know, profit and loss, cash flow and that type of thing between you and Perrin. Like, I'm just digging it. I will I will link those to Perrin Desportes for some of my listeners. You might remember yeah. a couple episodes back he came on and he blew my mind again with a lot of uh, numbers and stuff. So we'll list all of that out. But you're so you're a pretty prolific writer here. Um, when the box came with all of these manuals in it, because when your assistant contacted me and said, hey, we'd like to send you some books, I was like, oh, OK, well, I've seen some of these books on display at Voices of Dentistry. But then the box came and my husband said, are you did you sign up for a class or something like that? <laughs> I was like, no, it's all these books that he sent me. And so I've been having a good time reading it. The one that I dove into first, of course, was the front office manual. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But the one I spent the most amount of time on was the operations manual. And I had that up and ready to go when you when you said, you know, which one are we going to talk about? The one I haven't jumped into is the marketing manual, but I'm saving that for a relaxation time period out on the back porch because I love reading about that stuff. So the operations manual, I, I wanted to ask you, did you write this as you went or did you look, think back and go, you know what, I need to really write this down because I did it. And it was like, how did it, how did you document this? Cause this is, this is a lot of stuff. It's a compilation of all of our documents that I run my own dental practice on and Mark, I mean, it's a mix of both of our documents and, uh, and then it's, it was basically a project of multiple years of getting it to that point of the best of the best, uh, you know, ways to run the foundation of your practice. Like, what are your goals? Mm -hmm. um, where are you headed? Where are you driving this train? Because, you know, once you, you might turn your practice into something you don't actually want to be. Uh, so, you know, you got to have a solid foundation and then you go into like operations. What does your clinical setups look like? And then human resources. What does your onboarding process? Uh, what is your cadence of accountability? How do your daily checklists look for each team member? And then it goes into like cash flow and overhead control. So all these different parts of running the dental practice, the six big pillars of the systemization process for us, basically it took years to get to this point. And I said, well, let's cut down the growth curve of learning for people. You know, if people, and I, I constantly tell other folks this, don't remake an operations manual yourself copy what I've done and make it better and, or make it your own. You know, if you start from scratch, it'll take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of wasted money. Sure. So just jump that growth curve. So when they buy the book, they get to see exactly what is the possibilities, what's the level of systemization of, you know, other practices, and then they see what's possible, but it's all prefaced on the point that, you know, when your practice is more systemized, your life gets easier. So there's less stress. Uh, people know what they're doing. When they know what they're doing and they know what the goals are, it's easier for them to succeed. And when they succeed and they're happy, 
then your life gets better and you actually make more money. Part of it is dentists and folks in the dental field, you know, we want to know what winning looks like, but we also like to make a paycheck. When we both feel good and make a paycheck, that's the winning combination. Sometimes systemization gets a bad word because we see some of these times when systemization is forced as you do it my way. Right. You know, and maybe that's a corporate setting or a corporate mentality of, you know, you got to wear a black suit and a white shirt and, you know, this is the system and it's, it's our rules. But, you know, for a lot of us in practice, it's not that you have to do it one way or another. You just have to know that there's a way to be done. And some practices like to do, I, I kind of make the analogy, the opposite of a good way is not a bad way. It can also be another good way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's same, there's Medicaid practices that's, um, that the only kind of patients they take and the only kind of patients that they like to serve are on a state Medicare or Medicaid fee schedule. And sometimes they do really great work and they do really well and they're very systemized. In the same vein, the other end of the spectrum could be a really high-end fee-for-service practice that's only doing aesthetic dentistry or only implants. And that could also be another right decision or great decision. So it's not that you have to kind of follow the exact systems that I set out. You just have to have a system for yourself. And the way that we do that in our practice, when someone from another practice comes into ours, is like, well... I know that you have a way of how you've done things, but this is just how we do them here. Not that we're better than anybody else. It's just this is what we've found works well in our hands. And if they bring something better, then that's a bonus. But it is honestly just good behavior to learn the system you're supposed to work on and then try to improve it instead of coming in and swinging the sledgehammer, you know around. One thing that jumped out at me as you were explaining all of that is that you it's hard to come up with systems when you're not clear. And the example that you gave of the Medicaid practice, like, so doctors that I know are killing it in Medicaid, that's their, they are clear on their goal. They don't want to mix in, bring in different modalities, try different things. They know, they know how to be successful with Medicaid. And so their vision and their, they have clarity around that. There's a lot of doctors I'm sure you run into has come through, going through your mastermind where they just, they're not sure what that clarity is. I mean, basically they just want to do good dentistry, but it's tighter than that, right? Isn't it? And how do you move them down that that continuum? Well, a lot of times it's asking asking questions in the right setting. I mean, it's kind of like you go to a beach and you serve them a Mai Tai and you're like, wow, this is the best drink in the world. <laughs> and you buy a bottle of that and you take it back home to you know your cold place in Nebraska and you drink this Mai Tai and you're like, wow, this isn't the same. <laughs> this isn't the right drink. <laughs> Well, it's the same thing, but it's the environment. So sometimes when you when you get a weekend continuing ed education class or a mastermind where you get like a solid few hours to kind of focus on growth and development, you ask those questions. And it's often the questions of like, okay, my ideal day. And what does my ideal day look like? And is it, you know, okay, my first patient, I get two hours to do a bridge prep and then I get to go place an implant. But it's also, you know, how many hours a week do you work? You know, what kind of patient interactions do you get on a daily basis? How big is your team? How many weeks of vacation are you going to take every year? Like, what does your life look like? And when you start asking, oh, all these detailed questions, you come down to, and you can help someone figure out the exact kind of practice that they want. And sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes it's led by money. But I think when you separate out some of the money questions, because money can be achieved in multiple different ways. Like sometimes a $600,000 practice with a super high overhead only lets the dentist take $100,000 home. 
But then again, a $600,000 revenue practice that's running at a 50% overhead or 45% overhead, the dentist is making over 300,000. And the a dentist could be like, wow, that's, that's my goal. Mm-hmm. I thought I had to have a million or a, over a million dollar practice to achieve that. And I, I really don't. And so sometimes the money is, is kind of a secondary question as to all the other things. Because if you're happy in every other avenue of your life, but, but the money isn't quite there, I think some people can still find a lot of joy and happiness and, and contentment. When you ask a dentist, like, what is the ideal, and you get them to start thinking about these things, is it easier for them to do that with their their manager or their team? Or I would feel like that that might be limiting because what if, you know, my doctor who I love would say to me, I would love to have a two hour, you know, implant appointment in the morning. And I would be like, well, how am I going to schedule that? So like immediately the pushback is there, right? So is it, it's helpful, I guess, to not have the staff there? It's helpful sometimes to have a spouse there. But it's usually the the vision, and sometimes I talk about you need to leaders need to have a blurry vision. They need to know the end outcome of like what kind of things their practice does and and that sort of thing. But then sometimes and that's kind of maybe the strategy of how you get there. But then the tactics on a daily basis that gets a little bit more. You would need your team to really guide you in that respect because they might. And I mean, I'm sure you know this and any team members listening, they know the doctor better than the doctor knows themselves. <laughs> they know like, oh man, at one thirty after the doctors had pasta for lunch, right. <laughs> you know, they definitely start to look sleepy and could pass out giving an injection. The team members know. Certain days a Starbucks run was necessary, right? Yeah. It is interesting that the the team does know the dentist better, but at the same time, I think the team sometimes needs to realize, and I'm talking directly to my people here, like it it took a while for me to realize that I was shooting my my doctor's ideas down because there was a lot of change involved. And once I started going, okay, I'm going to let him, let's let him talk. Let's let him explain. Let's let me talk to the rep. And things changed a lot when that happened, because as an office manager, it wasn't my job to tell him why we couldn't do it. It was my job to help you know him achieve that. And that was a, that was a very different shift that happened when that did happen. <laughs> we both noticed it, yeah. you know, right away. Because um, there's a lot of strong managers out there, as you know. So, <laughs> And yeah, and it's sometimes the doctor should really be bringing the manager along to a lot of these meetings because it's the game of telephone. You always get the doctor coming back saying, hey, I want to implement this new endo system. <laughs> We're going to do this and that. And then they don't adequately communicate that to the team of how things work or how the system's going to be implemented. Sure. And what is got a perch out when they leave the CE is now a totally different material when they, you know, speak to the team. So kind of some of those things. So that's why having the team members or having a few trusted team members with you so that you can go through the thinking process before ever like announcing it to the rest of the team. Yeah. But yeah, I I do see some office managers are pushy, but really I think as a leader, you're there to serve. And so my office manager is pretty darn good at understanding that like, okay, I'm here to serve both the doctor and the team and to make sure that we're all on one page together. Yeah. And and it takes a little bit to get there. So I'm glad that you have a good one and uh, I'm glad I evolved and I'm glad my replacement has evolved. So, (laughs) because I don't manage the office anymore, obviously. But one thing that I thought was really fun was you basically have them do an assessment. It's a scorecard. The scorecard, as I'm reading through it, you know, as somebody who did coaching for a long time, this is very revealing, the scorecard, but then I loved at the end where it said, if you didn't score well, that's okay. It's a good starting point. Sometimes you need to lay it out for them 
the systems that you're going to look at. So that scorecard, I got to ask you, where did that come from? Like, is that something you created or it just kind of evolved? The scorecard, it's about some 50 items or so. Yeah. Uh, that was Dr. Costas created that as he was starting to develop his philosophy. Yeah. Most clients, though, you say they start off with really low scores. Mm-hmm. I commonly get uh, when a new client joins and they take this test for the first time, they go through and they say, oh, I'm at like a 15%. Like, how am I ever going to get to 80% systemization, 90%. And, you know, I say everyone starts at 15%. And it's just how it happens. And you also don't go from 15 to 100%, <laughs> you know, in a month. Right. It definitely takes, you know, six to 12 months to achieve that uh, level. And then people think, well, once I hit 100%, I'm gold. I'm good for forever. And that's also not the case. It's always, it's a process of continual improvement. And so you're always, as a good leader in the practice, you should always be looking at, okay, what am I doing well and what can I improve on? Is my checklist as it is, like maybe every six to 12 months, you kind of look at all the checklists and say, okay, are we doing a good job or have our processes changed when the iTero comes out with a new update and they change all the menu options? Okay, well, <laughs> that means I get to update my pictures and my operations yeah. documents. And so it's just kind of a continual improvement. And so being systemized is not a goal. It's just a way of being, it's a way of doing things. And so that's sometimes when you start to have everyone on the same page of this constant process of, Hey, I, I do the, you know, this is how we do the sterilization. And like, I'm going to write this down, take a few pictures on my phone, upload it to a little Google document. And this is how we do that. So that when we hire a new person, they know exactly how it should be done, how the beginning of the day, how clean everything should look. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was really cool, actually, to see, like, picture of a clean operatory. And then I thought, oh, I guess, okay, that makes sense because it was honestly like a light bulb moment because I would assume if the room looks clean, that's a clean operatory. But if you're new to dentistry, you don't know that that, you know, hey, <laughs> what is that, you know, wrap still doing there? That's not supposed to be there. Um, I wanted to just read a couple items on this on checklist, because if if I because I'm sure some people are like, what's on the checklist? Tell us what's on the checklist. So I'll just do a couple. And then you'll I'm sure some of you are listening are going to be like, oh, uh oh, because <laughs> I was <laughs> I certainly was. So um, the, the first thing is we've accrete the first one I'm going to read. We have created accountability agreements for each position, which includes all tasks for each protocol sheet and tasks that are shared among the team. Then you have, we have taken photos of each of the following ideal tray setups, common areas, business offices, supply, lab sterilization. We're in this every day. We don't think about that kind of thing. Um, We have agendas for the following meetings. And then you list out a couple different types of meetings that you have. And the one thing that I loved was a quarterly calibration meeting because I feel like some (laughs) office managers are like, we're in meetings all the time. But the meetings have to have purpose and agenda. So that was right there. So we are aware of the profession's ideal expense percentages and understand that elevated expenses in any category decreases profit. The whole thing about inventory is all over the place now. I'm sure when you first wrote this, it was pre-COVID or you had this set up before COVID. And COVID just came and blew all of these numbers out of the water. How has inventory changed and how do you teach it? Is it different how you teach it now? There's a new set of softwares out there that try to track inventory of, you know, all your dental dental supplies and whatnot. For me, I take take a different approach because sometimes we're busy enough as it is. We don't have time to go through and 
count how many suction tips we have <laughs> left in the, the bin or whatever. So I think sometimes that's a, a little bit of a waste. The biggest thing for me is managing it as a budget and just looking, okay, what's my target percentage purchase price? So on a $100,000 practice, you should spend about 4 to 5% on your dental supplies. Now that doesn't include if you're doing CEREC or other stuff, but you know, dental supplies of like- Four to five percent of oh, yeah. collections or productions. Let's be clear. Of collections. Okay, just want to yeah. make sure. <laughs> and so, as long as you're collecting ninety nine percent, which you should be, and I'm sure any practice that works with you is like ninety nine point seven. So well, they get there. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty much it should be one to one, but four to five percent would be our goal. Now I've seen practices eight, ten, eleven percent. I've also seen it way as low as. 3.5, but I mean, four to 4.5 would be a really healthy percent. That'd be a really great percentage. So you say, okay, $100,000 of production or revenue. Okay. We have four to four and a half thousand in our budget. So I always have my ordering assistant put that at the top of the spreadsheet. And then every time she makes an order from any of the ordering places we go from, she gets to subtract that amount. And as we get towards the end of the month, you know, if we're starting to get close, she comes and asks me, Hey, is it okay if I order this because, you know, we're running low? Mm -hmm. Yeah, usually I'll say, yes, we can't not have it. Right. But as long as you, you know, you don't jump instantly from eight to four, but as long as you say, okay, well, I'm right at, I'm at eight right now. Next month, I'm going to go seven. The next month, I'm going to go six. And I'm going to see if I can do that. Now, where I see overages, sometimes it's over ordering. It's ordering way too much. Yeah. And that's a common thing. And that if you start to set a budget and hold yourself accountable to that budget, you won't have too much stock of anything. It'll be, you'll have a three to four week supply of stuff and that'll be good. You never want to be in a pinch where you don't have something clinically. Um, so I never like to cut it that close, but the other, so you're either ordering too much and then sometimes you're ordering it from places that are more expensive than it should be. And so sometimes joining like a buying club or a place that gets discounts for us, we, uh, on the dental success network, we have a really good relationship with like Darby Pure Life and a few other crazy dental. We have a few really good relationships where we get special pricing. It's the same exact stuff you would order from other places, but it's just cheaper. Right. There's also those online places where you could order some stuff, but I'm very picky. There's always that gray market risk that somewhere you're ordering from could actually be a substandard supply or been tainted by temperature or, or it's a it's only meant for use in Europe or Indonesia, and it's not really approved for FDA use in the US. So that's always a risk that I'm not willing to take. Although that's some people do that. Yeah. I do order things that don't go in the mouth. I'll try to go for price and I'll go for the cheapest price possible. If it's like paper or other plastic items that aren't you know, used permanently in the patient's mouth. Well, I was cracking up because I, I was reading uh, on Facebook, there was a whole thread of uh, what what do you use that you can get cheaper, like at Costco that, you know, you can, because as we all know, the supply companies, you know, once they see your DMD or DDS, the price seems to go up exponentially. Um, and one person was saying that their tray covers, they just use regular copy paper. And I thought, oh, okay, that makes sense. I mean, honestly, like it's not much different, right? So, and uh, then then they were talking about, you know, the fact that they can get large clear bags as chair covers and 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 thought I was and your first thought is like, yeah. um, hmm, I don't know. That just seems kind of you know, 
like low end. And then you're like, oh, the patient won't know. And if it does the same thing. So, yeah. I mean, you had to look, I mean, right. But, but it's, it's about thinking outside of the box. And uh, the one manual that I was, I, I dug in about halfway through was the startup manual. And I'm so glad that there's resources like that out there because the startup dentists have no idea. They think because they're usually guided by a supply rep or a building rep or reps in general. And they're placing orders left and right and don't know about price shopping until they talk to somebody, you know, like you. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a very valuable guide there. So I'll, I'll put a shout out on that. In fact, I'll just list all the books on there. Yeah. <laughs> but the the inventory piece, I, the just-in-time that you were just talking about, you know, having enough for three weeks or so, we used to be pretty lean, right? Like you would have enough. And then COVID mm -hmm. hit and people are saying, I swear I will never be out of anything again because there was such a run on things. And I think that's easing up. So I, I, I think, I don't know, are you seeing people kind of relaxing yeah. about that? It's uh, getting a little bit better. Yeah. I don't see that many orders that don't come in on time, usually from the um, bigger like Darby or some of the more like respectable, larger businesses, larger warehouses, you can pretty much order something and get it within a day or two, you know, and that's, that's pretty awesome. Some of the other like online ordering websites like net 32, that typically does take a week to two weeks. And so some of those uh, things I'll make sure to order two weeks in advance of when I would potentially need them. But yeah, most things are calming, although there's some sometimes just crazy supplies like a bottle of Gluma or uh, some pro temp temporary crown material. Yeah. And it, it'll go, it'll jump crazy high in price and it'll be out of stock for a week and then it'll go back to normal. It's wild. You, just, you wonder what's happening. I know. I know. You just think somebody's up there like just put playing with a button or something like that. So one other, uh, and you have a whole onboarding and associate manual, but in the operations manual, I was um, spending a lot of time on the associate timeline. So the associate yeah. timeline, how many of associates have you moved through your offices? Probably like 10 or 12 now. Okay. So you know what you're talking about, obviously. Um, <laughs> somewhat. Some days. <laughs> So the timeline, though, I thought was really interesting. And people, what I'm talking about is here, they give this to the associate. And it's basically, here's what at month one we expect of you. Here's at month two we expect of you. Here's what you should be aware of. Here's what you should be learning. And here's how we do things. Where a lot of associateships fail is the owner doctor just kind of says, watch me work. And that <laughs> doesn't really work. So the the first time you, when you were brought in an associate, or the, even the first time you had an associate, were there a lot of takeaways that made you go, I need to document this? <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, my associate journey was not uh, the greatest. Uh, and then even my first associate that we hired, there was a broken file in the root canal of number eight. So you wonder, number eight is like a huge hallway yeah, and you somehow break a file. So it's like, <laughs> uh, should have uh, checked that a little closer. <laughs> it's kind of, you, you just learn through experience. And sometimes- it's a few painful experiences and then you start to figure it out. But yeah, being very clear on what the associate journey looks like, both for a senior doctor as well as the associate, sometimes it's as much coaching the senior doctors on what to expect when they bring a new person in it leads to the biggest failures mm -hmm. um, and negative feelings surrounding the whole process. So when you can fix that and prepare the senior doctor correctly to bring on an associate, it helps just the entire process, the team doesn't get stressed out. Everybody just knows, okay, this is how it's going to go. Anytime you add a new person into the team, you know, from sterile tech to hygienist to front desk, it changes the team dynamic. 
and then an associate just because of the perceived leadership position of that person having a DDS or DMD, it does change the team even to a greater degree. Hiring that person correctly is huge, um, but then also setting the ground rules for, okay, this is what you get to do clinically. This is how I'm going to check you clinically. Um, this is how we should communicate to our patients. I mean, sometimes if you're hiring a doctor who's new out of school, they've had some communications with patients, but their entire clinical experience in school might be about as equal to the first month in practice. So the first month in practice is such a developmental time in the life of the associate. So making sure you're seeing how they talk to patients, checking their clinical work from a class two composite to a crown seat, whether you let them do all the procedures, you might actually say, Hey, you know what? Like for the first six months or until I check you off or until you maybe watch me place six implants or 12 implants, you don't get to place your own implants. Mm. You know, you can, as a senior doctor, you should be setting the clinical tone for how things work. And so that would include potentially limiting how they do some things as well. What is the biggest pushback that you get from the senior doctor on that though? Because I'm sure some of them are going, well, why do I, have to, I mean, won't they know what to do? Won't the dental schools prepare them? I mean, how do you, how do you handle those? You know, you, you got to kind of set the tone of, Hey, for the first six months, this doctor is going to be learning your system. So even if they're a really productive doctor at a different practice, they might not be great mm -hmm. in your practice for the first month or two. And then there's also, you know, like, you know, the world of insurance. Insurances sometimes don't pay super quick. And so that doctor is going to be pulling their base salary or their, their commission-based salary based off of the work they do from day one. But then if you're collecting insurance checks by paper and everything else, you know, 30 days later, or the insurance starts giving you pushback and it's 45 or 60. Well, now you're 60 days past when they did the work and you're, you're paying them probably within the first few weeks. So you're potentially out like $20,000 or $30,000. And you're, as a senior doctor, you're losing money left and right. Cause you maybe hire an extra assistant and then you're paying the doctor and all of a sudden your profit loss looks really bad. And it takes about six months for everything to even out. After six months, times are much, much better. But for the first six months, you have to, you know, whether it's truly, are they, is an associate truly losing you money? Not really, but the delay in collections from insurance yeah. and them just getting integrated into your systems, it doesn't look good on the P&L. Right. And so that is probably the biggest stressor. And what happens is that these senior doctors then get really frustrated they start kind of hoarding patients. So like, oh, I told you that I would give you all the new patients. Well, now it's going to be 50-50. And then maybe that 50% of new patients still isn't good enough for them to keep up their production. So then they're like, well, now it's 70-30. And the senior doctors just get way more concerned about money. So as long as you have the money talk first and just say, hey, this is what it's going to look like. This is the delay in payments. This is the insurance credentialing process. You know, this is how it's going to go. Uh, it gets to be a much more smooth process with better understanding. So uh, listeners, if you've never had an associate or you're getting ready to onboard an associate for the first time, everything Addison just said is so spot on. I mean, that is very much the life cycle I always came across or heard about. And I would always hear it from the uh, manager's point of view where, okay, this associate is watching everything I'm doing because they want to get paid and I can't get paid faster than, you know, the insurance company pays me. So then they're then there becomes some tension there. And then uh, what to 
build on that. The owner dentist just usually goes, oh, she's like that. It'll be okay. Or, oh, the associate will get used to it. And they don't address that problem. So then there's animosity there. That's a whole different podcast. Um, because I did notice that there's there's a little bit of HR in your manuals, but there isn't a how to manage this crazy wild team that you're going to inherit. There hasn't been a lot of that. That's You're kind of waiting on writing that, aren't no. you? <laughs> that's, that's a book that I, I don't think I have the energy to write. That's, <laughs> I mean, oh, I mean, yeah. it, and it's stressful. I mean, anytime there's change, there's stress. Yeah. And sometimes an associate comes in with a humble attitude, which is great. And then sometimes they come in, you know, having just earned their degree or having done well at another office and they think that they're God's gift to the dental practice or the dental world. It's human dynamics. Like you are coming into their world uh, as a dentist. And so you need to be very humble understand that like they have their systems and it's, you know, kind of, we talked about onboarding people earlier. Anytime you onboard someone, I always tell them, you might have great ideas for the first 90 days. I want you to write those ideas down, like in our little onboarding booklet, mm -hmm. write them down on the, on the back of the booklet. And at 90 days, then I want you to tell me everything that we're doing poorly or we can improve on. Because for the first 90 days, you might see this slice of the pie mm -hmm. and then you see that slice of the pie. And you don't realize how all the pieces fit together to create the beautiful picture until you see the whole process. And so sometimes when an associate comes in, they think, well, we can do it better here, or I'm going to bulldoze and we need to make sure that we collect all that money up front. And the ops manager is like, well, no, we have good payment plan systems in place, or yeah. this is how we communicate with patients. And this is how we offer our financing options. So sometimes associates don't realize that because the DDS sometimes gives them a license to kills human dynamics and not <laughs> not learn as quickly. So they think they've done all the learning. That's a quote. The DDS gives us your license to kill <laughs> dy the yeah. team dynamics. I love that. So <laughs> it, it is interesting though, the, the, the change management, the conflict resolution, which are two skills that, I mean, I didn't learn that in college. You guys didn't learn that in dental school, uh, but if you can get a hold of that, you can manage and work with pretty much anyone through a situation, but man, they're tough skills to learn. So um, managers, if you ever get a chance to take a class in change management, but definitely conflict resolution, that could seriously help you. The team dynamics are even more strange nowadays because we don't have a lot of team, like good team members to choose from. Our candidate pool is, of course, shrinking. You know, my listeners hear me just complain about this all the time. But what are your um, what are your mastermind dentists? What are they seeing and how do you see it easing up or what are you seeing? I've seen more applicants recently okay. in the last like month or two. Uh, I don't know if that's because of a fear of a recession coming up. If people are trying to look for more stable jobs, it's usually these front desk jobs coming from outside dentistry. They want to get into dentistry, which is great. I love that. I mean, because I think dentistry is a great culture and a great atmosphere to be in. So I've seen it easing a little bit, but pay uh, for those positions, especially the skilled ones, assistants and hygienists are still very high. The biggest thing uh, that I go back to usually when hiring is Patrick Lencioni's book, uh, The Ideal Team Player. Ideal Team Player has three characteristics, which is humble, hungry, and smart. So humble, that's easy. Hungry to work hard because um, we all like people who want to work hard and then smart. But it's not book smart, it's people smart. When you find those people that have all those three attributes, they will be a wonder to work with. Those are great people to hire at your front desk that are eager to learn dentistry and you can teach them all the fun of dentistry. And that's also, that's a great 
archetype to also hire as like a sterilization tech. Mm -hmm. Teach them sterilization, start to teach them the clinical side, and then merge them into a, a good dental assistant if that's available in your state. I'm lucky enough in Nebraska, state laws allow me to hire hire somebody and train them myself as a dental assistant. And then I have to send them to a few courses to take radiographs and polish, but um, at least I can start people as a sterile tech, make sure they have those three qualities and go from there. Well, at least you're sending them to classes. I mean, unfortunately, I hear dentists that are hiring assistants and assistants have always sort of been the the forgotten, maybe not the forgotten, but almost like the the ones that you don't worry about taking a lot of CE, which is kind of sad. You know, we we talk about, I mean, even a lot of managers don't take as much CE as they could, but assistants, I hear this routinely. My friend Kevin Henry teaches assistants all the time. And when they go to Yankee or Chicago, they're like, oh, this is my first CE or we only get one CE a year. It's like, man, and that sucks because your CE is probably infection control, which is like super boring. Right. To me, anyways. I mean, some people can liven them up, but ugh, I'm like, oh, wow. I need like a show. I need like dinner and a show for, for infection yeah. control. Right. So I, I think with uh, assistance, it's good that you send them for education. The hygienist, though, man, it's hard that I don't know if these rates are going to course correct. I just I don't know. It's hard to give them higher fees and then ratchet that down. I don't know. What do you think? It's going to be really tough in, uh, you know, the bigger states, California, New York, where some hygienists are asking for, you know, 60 to $75 an hour, whereas some insurance payers are only paying like $74 for a profit in those states. And so, you know, you're like, oh, this is not sustainable. So I don't know if and when it'll course correct. I hope that it does because there seems to be an animosity growing between a dental camp and a the hygiene camp. Yeah. I think that the best way to overcome though, I mean, there, there still is a hiring shortage of a lot of the skilled positions. And so the best way to overcome that is by creating an atmosphere and a culture in the office that is focused around just being a great place to work. And sometimes that's, you know, just having, a, you have a good group of people, don't poison that with one bad egg. Yeah. Sometimes that's the toughest thing in the world is you have a great employee and then you have to let them go because they are toxic to the culture. Sure. And that, that can be really, really tough. And that can shoot yourself in the foot too, financially, for a short term, uh, a pain. But when you uh, are able to maybe refill that with like a better culture fit, you know, you can teach skills. Like that's most people are teachable. And so you can teach skills, but you can't teach culture and attitude sometimes. Do you ever get the doctors that come into the mastermind and they're complaining about the one employee? And as you as you continue the story, everybody seems to quit around this employee and they can't figure out why. Um, is that, uh, I mean, do they wake up? They wake up, don't they? <laughs> Happens all the time. And so usually it takes, you know, in our, in our mastermind, when we do our mastermind weekends a few times a year and in smaller groups other times a year, usually, you know, we sit around the table with like eight doctors and, and our team members and we have a hot seat. So it's like 20 to 30 minutes of you just kind of saying, okay, here's my here's my practice picture and I, here's my main three problems. Usually all those three problems for some of the newer folks, it's all centered around, well, this person's not doing this or this or mm. they're toxic or, or like, well, I just had somebody quit and you know I need to refill that. Like, why do you need to refill it? We figure out that it's one team member <laughs> that's usually the toxic one of the bunch. <laughs> So we, there's a high correlation between mastermind meetings and terminations of toxic people. Because sometimes, 
and it's usually self therapy. Yeah. You know, as you're telling the story, you're figuring it out yourself. Yeah. Somebody else might point out to you, like, do you think that it's maybe that person that's maybe poisoning the water up front, and that's why three other people have left? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not the bad position; it's the other position next to that person. Yeah. And so, yeah, high correlation between that and termination, but in a really supportive group. And when you have enough different voices and different experiences in the group, you can see like, and you can feel good knowing, okay, this actually is the person that I need to have a tough conversation. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to free you up to a new future. Mm. And sometimes it's just like, hey, I understand you're going through something tough at home or in your personal life, but you can't bring it to the office. Like you need to be on point here. You need, this is a stage you're showing the patients and your other team members what kind of person you are. And I don't think you're coming across as the kind of person you want to be. And so sometimes they have that, that conversation as well. Well, and those are, those are never fun to have, you know, the, the front office manual, what I thought was fun was uh, the, all the scripts that you gave in the back and your co-author, uh, Amanda, hopefully she'll be um, able to join me on a future podcast. She, she did a good job. Both of you collaborate. Oh, and, and uh, there's another co-author. I'm so sorry. And, yep. And the, Natalia. Natalia. Ramirez, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, Natalia. I'm sorry. I don't mean to shortchange you, but I knew there were three pictures on the inside of the cover. But really what is fun is when I come across new office managers and they're like, well, I don't know how to say things the way that, you know, you say things or the other speaker says things like they just fly out of your mouth. And it's like, yeah, because I've been doing this like a gazillion years, right? Like I've been doing this forever. It, they'll get to be that same way, but half the battle is just knowing what to say. And so this, the scripts that you gave in the back, it was I was reading and laughing because I kind of was having receptionist PTSD. Like here's a patient that is having a bad, you know, doesn't understand their balance and, and patient doesn't think they should pay. And I was like, oh, geez, like, like it was like a, a rogues gallery going through my head of all the patients I've had these conversations with. You know, having to to coach someone through having conversations um, with patients is, I think, fun and it's it's easy to do. But coaching a doctor and coaching a manager to have a disciplinary conversation is there's so much emotion wrapped up into that. Mm -hmm. I would imagine some of the younger doctors that haven't had to be confrontational are, are having a hard time with that. Yeah. And that's why it's sometimes good. You have that, you practice that conversation a few times with a peer or a spouse and you have that conversation. And sometimes you tell your spouse, Hey, come back at me in a super negative way or, okay, come back at me in a super quiet and like, don't, don't talk. And, and sometimes it is a very gut-wrenching thing. Like as a leader, that it's one of the toughest things, but you also, sometimes you got to frame it in your own mind of how what is my goal here? Yeah. Is my goal for them to uh, diminish their self-worth or to put them down? No. My goal, I want them to be better. I want them to be improved. I think for some people with maybe older children, <laughs> it's a it's an easier thing to kind of like, oh, how would I talk to my 18-year-old <laughs> son or daughter? Like they're old enough to understand and I shouldn't sugarcoat it, but I need to do it in a loving manner. And I need to tell them what they're doing wrong. And just say, hey, I, I need you to improve. Like, I know you can. You're smart enough to improve. Yeah. Let's improve. And if you don't, okay, we're going to have another tough conversation. But I think when you frame it in your own mind, that okay, I'm going to come across in a loving manner, but I'm going to be honest. And so I think when you hit both of those as your most important modes of communication, it still sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy, yeah. but it's uh, it can go a lot better. 
So I have a, a, a kind of a random question. I know we're going to start wrapping up, but there's a, it's not really random. I read it in the manual, but I was like, ooh, I want to talk about this. You had a couple pages on fraud and embezzlement and how to identify that. Um, and I forget which manual it was in, uh, but I, I remember thinking, I got I to gotta ask about this. Now that doctors are paying more attention to the reports, I think COVID, you know, if there's anything positive that could come out of that was finally people Googled how to run reports. Doctors Googled how to run reports and did all that. And you've got lots of screenshots. So that's fun. Are your masterminds, are your, or just even doctors that you talk to on a regular basis, is this a conversation you're having more and more? I've seen it a few times. Okay. It hasn't been super widespread. It's gone statistically, it's got to happen. But I wonder if the kind of people that are joining the mastermind uh, or joining DSN are already kind of looking at the reports and keeping a somewhat closer eye. But then again, it's statistically, it's probably happening. Uh, and when it does happen, sometimes it's really big. Yeah. Um, and it's heartbreaking to see because it's usually a trusted team member who's a very hard worker, uh, but then something changed in them. And maybe they were always dishonest and maybe they were just something happened and they're newly dishonest. If someone wants to steal from us it, and they're smart enough, there's almost no system that we can try to fit that will stop most of it. But the biggest thing is separation of powers, mm -hmm. like making sure that not one person takes care of everything. Yeah, And then looking for the signs, well, like A, and then B, setting up good systems to just make sure there is, you know, multiple hands on the, on the money or video cameras over the front desk. Like I, I have video cameras in my office just for that purpose alone, just to say, hey, you know what? Like it's for your safety and mine. If a patient comes after you, I want to see the video so that I can back you up. So and just knowing that. The other thing is just making sure you know the signs of when embezzlement might happen, which would be, yeah, like you know, someone that's always there, never takes a day of vacation. Well, it's because they don't want anybody else looking through the stuff. But then the biggest things to fight it is, yeah, good systems, good reporting, always tracking, tracking your money, having multiple people check it. So like the bookkeeper always verifies that the deposit slips and open dental or your dentrix reports are equalized out every day. Just kind of yeah. all those checks and balances so that no one would even ever get the idea that they could steal from you because it would be impossible. But you said it's tough. It's it's because it is about I think the last stat I saw was like 50% or something like that. A dentist had been embezzled from. I think it's way higher than that because people are going to answer honestly, right? So, and, and it's happened. And then you've got, you yeah. know, time theft, like it's just sitting on the clock or clocking in early and not doing anything or clocking in and going home or whatever. Um, so you've got a whole bunch of that. And then, of course, you've got supply theft. But when I talk to managers, what I'm hearing from the regional managers, especially, uh, is that they need more training on this to spot it because they have to put on their almost like owner's hat because they need to catch it if it's happening in the offices. But they kind of don't know what to look for because they almost feel like, well, they're not trusting me enough to teach me because they think I'm going to steal from it. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of a catch-22 there. So that that is something that doctors could could run into. But I think there are a lot of office managers that want to make sure that things are accounted for. There's a whole thing when you work with a small office, I and mean, you know from being a small office that you get real friendly, you get real close to your people. How do you coach somebody through realizing that you can't be best friends with everyone? Or or do you still find that that is something that you're just, just perennial, it's going to be a problem all the time? I mean, different types of doctors, some doctors are very age separated from their uh, team members, and then some are very close. 
And I think sometimes it takes a personal experience of becoming too close of like bonding with somebody who's a toxic employee, yeah. but that toxic employee then uses that relationship against the doctor to like poison the water with other team members. Sometimes it takes going through a painful experience to learn that you need boundaries. I mean, sometimes new doctors try to get, they try to win over the team by becoming their friend. Yeah. And I mean, we're all friends. It's just, you know, I'm not going to go out drinking on a Friday night with you. It's just that like, you know what, I enjoy spending time with you and at our parties, work events, you know, whatever we, we get along, we enjoy ourselves. And I enjoy, I mean, you spend more time with your coworkers and team members than you probably do with almost anybody else in your life. For sure. But setting those boundaries of like knowing what's appropriate, what's not, it sometimes just takes a few years and it takes learning from other people's experiences as well. Yeah. I think that's one of the toughest, you know, uh, lessons for a new dentist and a new new manager, a new leader to learn. Uh, you want to, like you said, you want to wrap your arms around everyone and be good friends with them. So, but there's, you can't really write a manual for that, can you? <laughs> you can't really yeah, systematize that's... that. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't I haven't had too many good uh, books on that topic yet. <laughs> so, is there another manual that's in the in the works? Well, I think you know, working on other projects, but I haven't come to a final idea yet. Okay, so. all right. Well, you've got plenty to keep them busy. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna link all of that. Like I said, I'm gonna link all the books in there. Um, the front office manual. Um, just real quick before we end, you want to talk a little bit about that um, because I know that that is. Uh, yeah, well, you know, one of I was super excited you sent it, and I was like, "Ooh, look at all these screenshots that people can take a look at." Um, it's mostly yeah. open dental, but you do have lots of masterminds that yeah. are mastermind members that are other software that are on other softwares. Yeah, the uh, yeah, so the front office manual is our it's our newest one. Basically, it's you know, if you're in the front office, you don't really care about learning the clinical systems, but you need to know the phones really well some of the tech systems like, yeah, this book is primarily open dental based, <laughs> but also, you know, the top insurance companies across the nation, how can I verify insurance quickly through their online portals? How should I submit claims? How should I submit secondary claims? What are some of the rules around that? You know, I just had a patient yesterday say, well, I get four cleanings a year because I have two insurances. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not how it works. So <laughs> I'm like, but let me go double check in my book. Right. And yeah, that's still not how it works. <laughs> You know, you, we get all these funny questions about yeah, insurance, uh, payment plans, and basically just how to make follow a patient from A to Z through the patient experience to make sure it's a good patient experience. Yeah. So that's kind of everything around this book, uh, including then, you know, sometimes insurance gives pushback on a different procedure. So what are some strategies to mitigate when a procedure is denied or a claim is denied or ask for more information? And, how to kind of go through that process. And the scheduling too. So scheduling, is that, that's kind of the, it's an engine that runs in the practices, but how how solid is that system when people come to your meetings? Because to me, that seems like, it's it's like nailing jello to a wall. And and until you until you get it, it's almost impossible. Yeah, it's, it's a tough system to learn if you're outside of the like block scheduling mentality. I love to start people off. It's just, okay, let's, let's start blocking out part of your day. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's the first two hours or like eight to 10 AM or the first two hours after lunch. And block scheduling is what I think has made my life a lot easier because you, you set certain times of the day for certain procedures and you honor the block. And you basically say no, nothing gets in that block until 
the day before if it's not filled. And that could be for like new patients and SRP on the hygiene side, yeah. or it could be for like fillings, crowns, implants, whatever on the doctor side. And then blocking out, you know, you never want to do a crown, but then you're booked out four weeks for a crown seat. Right. And it's like, well, I'll have it back in a week and a half. So you need to bo both do like, okay, a crown prep appointment and a crown seat appointment. And you have enough blocks for each type of appointment. And when you do that, you start to learn what's possible. Because if you're, like you said, nailing jello to a wall, you're like, well, this, I'm never going to have this ideal day every day. Yeah. And you're like, well, actually, you can't have the ideal every day, every day that you plan to do it. So planning to do it is just a block scheduling. So we offer like little Excel spreadsheet templates to create your own ideal schedule and kind of go through that process. And if people do that, they really can kind of see the opportunities and the potential. And sometimes it's financial potential, but it's also, you know, you don't want to be looking for that fourth root canal, the nerve canal on MB2 at 4.30 in the afternoon right. after you've already been working through your lunch hour. Right, like you don't right. want to be doing that. <laughs> so when you set up your day for the proper energy as well, you're doing the most important procedures when you have the most energy. And the you know easy slam dunk things like occlusal on number 28, you know, when you're maybe at the least energy, <laughs> when you're kind of like, okay, I'm done with all the big stuff for the day. Let's just slam some little occlusal fillings or, right. you know, let's do crown seats and stuff that's not as physically or mentally taxing. How long do you, do you tell them to give it before they give up? Because that's, because that's usually what I hear is like, we tried it for two or three weeks. And I was like, oh gosh, that's like, that's like just a moment in time. You know, how long do yeah. you tell them to give it? Probably three months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, usually by two to three months, they're like, oh man, I didn't, because everyone does it their own way sometimes. Sure. And so, like they might figure out their own best system. And then by the end of that two to three months, they're like, well, I didn't, I didn't do it how you did it, but this is how we do it. And now I love it. And nice. once people truly get into that system, they do love it. So the best example of blocking I ever heard was a, I had a, I had a client. She, she was hilarious. She was her own personality anyway. So this makes sense coming from her. Uh, we, they were not allowed to book crown replacements or bridge replacements after lunch because she never wanted to smell an old bridge after lunch. And she made that a hard rule of like only initial initials after lunch. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. are you serious? Like we have to look at the treatment we have to do that. And she said, I'm telling you, Teresa, if you don't want me to throw up in the back, then you're going to do it this way. And out they did. So <laughs> to me, that was the best example of of block scheduling, and no one ever broke that. So I thought that was really yeah. funny. But so, Addison, how do people find you? How did they reach out to you, and and how do they best connect? Yeah, so uh, AddisonKilleen.com is my website. So if you want to check out my uh, daily dental podcast or any of the books, yeah, AddisonKilleen.com, or doctors can connect with me on DentalSuccessNetwork.com. Uh, that's where we host our um, online CE portal, our vendor savings, our community network. Awesome. All right. So all those links are going to be in the show notes. And thank you so much for reaching out. I, I look forward to connecting with Amanda. <laughs> and if Natalia wants to come on, she can too. But I am really grateful that you guys reached out. And thank you so much for these manuals. Like I'm still going through them. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. And dear listeners, you know, I'm always so grateful that you spend your time with me. We're all super busy, so thank you for making time for me today. 
The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.